Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Now to our Open House series on Finding God, a treasury of conversion stories by author and pastor John Mulder. Each week we've been exploring the conversion experiences of four people of the 60 John has included in his book. He's authored 25 books all up, and this is his favourite. Let's see who we have tonight. John Mulder, welcome back to Open House. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be with you. Look forward to it again, John. John, before we begin with tonight's four stories, I'll ask you this question. As you reflect on the rich and varied experiences of these uh, 60 notable people, have these been stories of God finding people or people finding God? You've hit upon a real sensitive area in the whole production of this book and in my whole way of thinking about uh, how people encounter God and how God encounters them. I think the easiest way to get at this is to say that on one side of people encountering God, it really is their search. They are trying to find God or they are resisting God as they make a journey through life. Once the experience happens, it is absolutely clear in practically every one of these stories that the person looks back and finds out that it's God finding them, not they finding God. Francis Thompson is in the book with his famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, He's racing, racing, racing to find God, only to find God finding him at the end of the race. It's really a matter of perspective. The person on a search, realizing that all the time that they were searching, they were being searched for rather than they searching for God. It's a great answer, yes. So let's get underway with our four stories for tonight, John. First, a man highly significant in the history of both the Catholic and Protestant churches, Martin Luther. It's impossible to talk about Luther without using superlatives. He lived his life in a kind of metaphorical thunderstorm. Everything was drama for Luther. The whole declaration of, here I stand, I can do no other when he uh, makes his famous declaration in behalf of the emerging Protestant faith. He starts his life as the son of a coal miner who is very ambitious, not only for himself, but for his son. His father prospered as a coal miner, and he wanted the same material prosperity for his son. Luther disappointed him mightily when he suddenly decided to become a monk, an Augustinian monk, and uh, it came after he had been in the forest during a thunderstorm, appropriately, and frightened out of his mind, he cried, St. Anne, save me, I will become a monk. And he devoted himself to becoming the best possible monk he could be. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. And he searched and searched and searched for the assurance that somehow he was going to be worthy in God's sight. At the end of his life, he recounted an experience uh, many years earlier in his life. It's called the Tower Experience, 
And in contrast to all of these wild swings in his life and the drama of his life, this was a very quiet experience. Uh, he was working on a commentary on the book of Romans, and he said suddenly it came clear. He was righteous before God, not because of what he was and what he had achieved, but because of God's grace. Justification before God through faith and grace, not through works. And that breakthrough, he said, I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. The psychologist and brilliant biographer of uh, Luther, Eric Erickson, makes the argument that Luther really was a man standing both one foot in the medieval era and one foot in the modern era. He really was a man who was living out the agonies of the old order and the emerging new order of the modern world. And this emphasis, finally, on the surrender of the individual to the power of God and finding salvation, finding peace, finding security, finding assurance, not through what one does, but one's faith in a God who makes all of us whole. That's the secret to what Luther did in changing the religious consciousness of the Western world. His impact, though, goes way beyond the issue of salvation. Luther translated the Bible into what became the modern German language. The whole emphasis of Lutheran piety upon the inwardness of the heart and the human spirit gave birth to great literature and music. Luther's legacy culturally is more in the area of the arts and literature and music, in contrast to Calvin's legacy, which is much more in the area of politics and economics. And the church, be it the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, were never the same again after Martin Luther. Fast forward to 1813, John. David Livingston is born, who becomes one of the most significant figures in the West for Africa. Livingston opened up the continent of Africa for the English-speaking world and for the Western world more generally. He was a young Scotsman born in poverty, and he was passionately committed to becoming first a doctor and ultimately uh, an amazing uh, explorer in Africa. Toward the end of his life, he wrote in his diary, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to Thee. Accept me and grant, O gracious Father, that ere this year is gone, I may finish my task. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen, so let it be. David Livingston. And that was just before he died and was buried. Actually, his heart and entrails were buried in Africa, and his body was shipped back to be buried at Westminster Abbey. It's very interesting, I think, that someone with such incredible drive and zeal in his faith 
said very, very little about how he actually came to an awareness of God's presence in his life. With typical sort of British reserve, he says, I do not intend to specify with any prominence the evangelistic labors to which the love of Christ has since impelled me. This book, his autobiography, will speak not so much of what has been done as of what remains to be performed before the gospel can be said to be preached to all nations. So we only get a little glimpse of this young Scottish boy who came to an awareness of God's presence in his life and turned him into an amazing missionary, an amazing doctor, and a path-breaking explorer. Is it possible to encapsulate what David Livingston meant for Africa, John? Well, on the one hand, he carried with him all of the Victorian prejudices about Africa and African peoples and spurred the colonial empire that dominated Africa until the mid-20th century. On the other hand, he really was an advocate for the African peoples. So his legacy is quite mixed as we look back ethically and religiously on what he gave to Africa and to the Western world. But clearly he captured the Western imagination about Africa. No other single person did more to bring Africa into the awareness of the Western world. Yes. Next, John, we head to Russia and somewhat of a contemporary of David Livingston's, one of the heroic figures of world literature, Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Take us through his conversion story. Well, I can take you through his conversion story, but I can't tell you what the novels are about because they're too long and I've never read them. (laughs) You wouldn't be alone. (laughs) Tolstoy was a man born to great wealth, and during the first part of his life he generated the great novels that you referred to. He then had a kind of crisis that is both a spiritual crisis and an ethical crisis. He wanted to return, he said, to the primitive Christianity of Jesus. He uh, he said that religion comes from life, not life from religion. He said he wanted to find the religion of Christ, but divested of faith and mysteries, a practical religion, not promising eternal bliss, but bliss here on earth. What he finally ended up with is a form of ethical Christianity, where the miracles of Jesus don't play a significant role, the resurrection of Christ doesn't play a significant role, but the hard, ethical, and almost impossible teachings of Jesus are the form of faith that he ultimately arrives at. Faith that emphasizes pacifism, the suppression of anger, the love of one's neighbors, non-resistance to evil, and a refusal to exert force of any kind over other people, the taking of oaths as morally wrong, and the sinfulness of sex outside of marriage. It was a kind of Christian communism that he ultimately saw as the uh, religion of Jesus or the faith of Jesus. 
And it is striking that Tolstoy develops this alongside of what became the atheistic form of communism in Russia. Even though many Orthodox Christians would look at this and say this is not really the true faith or the faith that the Church adheres to, it is a vision of a Christian life that is still compelling and prophetic. And I think that's why I put him into the book. Yes, he's an important addition, I think. Finally tonight, John, a woman who needs really no introduction at all, Mother Teresa. Of course, so much is known about her significant and beautiful work for the poor and the destitute, but maybe not so much about her journey to faith. Yes, Mother Teresa is a fascinating person and a saint, even though she has not yet been actually given sainthood by the Vatican. She's born into a relatively comfortable family, and despite the comfort of her youth, she resolved very early that she was going to be a nun. And she sought out the Order of Loretto, and ultimately she was transferred to India. She then had what she called the call within the call. Her first call was to be a nun. The second call was to live among the poorest of the poor. And she talked about that call within the call on many occasions and in several of her writings. And in the book, it's clear that she had a profound sense of God really summoning her to not simply be a nun, but to serve in the poorest of the poor. Alongside of that, after her death, however, there's this wonderful book, Come Be My Light, which is her diary and letters. And what emerges from that is that this woman who did so much to galvanize the world's imagination and ethical vision about the poor of India and the poor in other parts of the world, this woman who was so committed and so dedicated lived a life of great doubt. She is a woman who was plagued by doubt in her own life, and she agonized constantly to her diary and to her spiritual advisor about her lack of faith. It's striking that what she saw in the New Testament, and especially the crucifixion of Jesus, the most important part for her was the words of Jesus on the cross when he said, I thirst. And she wrote, why does Jesus say, I thirst? What does it mean? Something so hard to explain in words. I thirst is something much deeper than just Jesus saying, I love you, until you know deep inside that Jesus thirsts for you. You can't begin to know who he wants to be for you or who he wants you to be for him. This image of Jesus thirsting for her is another way of getting at the question at the beginning of the interview. Is Mother Teresa thirsting for God, or is God thirsting for her? It's a mystery and a kind of crystal that has many facets 
depending on which way you turn it, the light will uh, shine on a different part of the mystery of turning to God. Yes, and the world can be thankful that both God sought her and she sought God in the end. John, it's been a great conversation again about our four people tonight. Next week, in the final week, sadly, of our series of conversations with John Mulder, we look at the conversion stories of John Calvin, Albert Schweitzer, Evelyn Underhill, and C.S. Lewis. I'll also be pressing John on his favourite conversion stories. John, thanks so much for joining us on Open House. Thank you, Lee. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.